19th century American hymn writer, John Hopkins Jr., wrote a very famous Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. It pictures the three kings following the star, bringing gold for the king, bringing frankincense for the deity, bringing myrrh for his burial, and finishing with a wonderful verse of the risen Jesus, glorious now behold him arise, God and king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, earth to heaven replies. Now even though the king's, the king's visit is supposed to be celebrated on January the 6th, the last of the 12 days of Christmas, uh, in the feast known not as Christmas but the feast of the Epiphany, each Christmas season people want to sing this hymn, this carol, and want to celebrate this visit of the three kings. And each Christmas season we see the picture of the mother and her baby in a stable with the shepherds and the angels and the three oriental kings. Because the picture, like the hymn, while honouring to Jesus, isn't true. The visitors from the east came after the birth of the Lord Jesus and came to a house where the baby was no longer in a stable but in the house. And later in the chapter, Herod, when he goes to kill the children, of which we'll see next year, he looked for all the children under the age of two. We don't know how long there was a delay between the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and the arrival of the three from the east. We, it could be up to two years later. It could have been a week or two, but it certainly wasn't the night in which he was born when the shepherds were in the, in the stable. And so these pictures that we have, these stage sets that we have, actually aren't right historically. But even if they were, we have problems with the three kings from the Orient. And the number of visitors is not given. So there's no real reason to think there were three, let alone be able to give them their names, Gaspar, Balthazar and Melchior, that's all just made up. They're nowhere in the Bible, as that mentioned. In fact, the only reference we have is what we've just had read for us. And these three kings from the Orient are really not necessarily three. There are three gifts, and from the three gifts, people have assumed there's three kings. But there could be any number of, of, of visitors who bought the, the gifts it could have been a dozen for all we know. All we know is it's more than one because they're in the plural. So it's at least two and as many as there were. Furthermore, they weren't actually kings. Or at least nowhere in Matthew are they called kings. They're called Magi, which is the plural of Magi. It's a Persian name for a wise man, a magician or an astrologer. Certainly, following a star would give you the idea that they were astrologers. Now, because they're magicians or astrologers, that's a slight embarrassment to biblical Christianity because we're always warned against such people, and so kings are an easier way of solving the problem, but it creates a bigger problem if we ever move away from the truth of God's word. Furthermore, not only were there not necessarily three, not only weren't they kings, but they most likely weren't from what we would call the Orient. The Orient refers to East Asia, especially China and Japan and their neighbours. Uh, these weren't from 
the Orient. Uh, they were from the east, they came from the eastward, but from the east of Jerusalem and Bethlehem is the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, Babylon, Assyria, Persia. That was known as the east. Technically, of course, if you look at a map today, you will see that that's southwest Asia. It's not East Asia, it's not the Orient. And so we three kings of Orient are, most likely weren't three, weren't kings, and most likely weren't from the Orient. Just to mention problems with the first line of that famous carol. I'm sorry to take away from you the pleasure of singing it, although next time you do, you can have the pleasure of knowing that it was wrong, even if the people around about you sing with gusto. And their gifts did not symbolise the king and God and sacrifice that the song says. It's a wonderful hymn, and, but the gifts that were given were just the traditional gifts of wealth and respect, into which Christians have read other meanings, quite godly meanings, king and God and sacrifice, but it's not actually in the text. So then, having removed lots of our ideas about this, these, these visitors... Let's look at the, the when, the who, the where, the why, the what that this is actually talking about and get back to beyond the Christmas hype, back to the reality of the history of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 introduces us to King Herod, a man that we know from inside the Bible as well as outside of the Bible. There are seven Herods in the New Testament, so if you get a little confused from time to time, there are seven of them all in one family across three generations mentioned in the New Testament. This one is the grandfather of them all. This was the first Herod, known as Herod the Great. He ruled at the favour and patronage of the Roman Emperor. He was a very clever politician, a brilliant administrator of his kingdom. Under him, Judah prospered and huge buildings and infrastructure works took place. He was the one who planned and started the great temple in Jerusalem, that Jesus saw, of which the Wailing Wall is all that is left today. And he maintained the peace in Israel under Roman rule and Roman occupancy. As rulers go, he was a great ruler. But Herod, like most rulers in times of peace, prosperity and building, was as corrupt as they could go and as wicked as evil. He had no right to be on the throne of David. He was not of the house of David. He was not of the tribe of Judah. In fact, he wasn't even really Jewish. He was an Idumean, uh, an Edomite, whose father had been circumcised. He ruled by the terror and murder. Having married into a priestly family, he then got the rest of the family executed. He became so paranoid in his last days and... It's his last days we're talking about in chapter 2 and we'll see this next week. He became so paranoid that in his last days he was fearful that his sons were trying to assassinate him from his deathbed, I may say, and so they had several of his own sons executed. The man was a monster. Though the country ran very prosperously during his reign. The Magi, Magi the wise men, were representatives of the Middle Eastern sages part wise man, part magician, part astrologer, part charlatan. I mean, all other mentions of such people in the Bible are always negative. Uh, Acts 13 talks of Elymas, and a false prophet, he's one. In the Bible as a whole, Israel was not to turn to these wise men or to the magicians. 
For Israel had the word of God. And so Moses was wiser than the wise men of Egypt. And Daniel was wiser than the wise men of Babylon. Because they had the word of God. Whereas the wise men, the magi of their particular cultures or age, were just floundering in the dark. It's important to notice that these men, though, came from the east to Jerusalem. For that is where the conquering Assyrians had come from. That is where the people of Judah were taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. And so what it's saying is the nations of the world that previously had conquered us are now coming, subject to the prophecies of the Old Testament, to worship the king. Now in saying that they were worshipping the king, that's not some hidden clue to the idea that this king was divine. We reserve the word worship today to God. We don't worship anybody but God. But the word used to refer to, to bowing, to giving something it's worth, whoever it may be. I don't know if you remember the old wedding service, but in the old wedding service, the bridegroom promised, as he gave the ring to his bride, with my body, I thee worship. It was to give her the honour that is her due. And to the ancient Middle Eastern king, worship meant coming and bowing down, prostrating yourself before their majesty, and that's what the Magi did. It's no indication that they thought he was God. But why? Why did they come? Why did they prostrate themselves before this baby? Why did they, of all people pagan magicians, recognise the king of Judah, the king of Israel. And are we to derive from this that the pagan magician is actually right, astrology is right, that it's all right to, to, to consult with them because it is accurate? Why did this event happen? And why is it recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel? Now to understand that, we need to understand Matthew in his own terms. And Matthew in his own terms is all about the Old Testament. For each of the events that are recorded for us here in Matthew always refer back to an Old Testament prophecy. Indeed, from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, if you just turn back to, page, uh, to verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. And then it gives you a whole Old Testament chronology as it goes through the genealogy from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. And so as we look at this event, we must look at it in the light of the Old Testament. And as you look at the light of the Old Testament, there are several parallels. Uh, there was Moses battling with the magicians in Pharaoh's court, that wicked king who wouldn't recognise God's son, Israel. And there is Balaam, a wise man, a prophet from the east who prophesied for money. He prophesied, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, which is alluded to in verse 2 of our reading today. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we see his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then there's references in the Psalms and Isaiah. So in Psalm 72, 
There are talks of kings coming from far countries to worship the king of Israel. And Isaiah 60 talks of foreigners bringing gold and bringing frankincense. And there was the conflict where Daniel knew more than the Magi of Babylon. For to him, not to them, were revealed the mysteries of the king's dreams. And while the events of Matthew 2 can evoke all these kind of Old Testament parallels in your mind, the, the passage before us indicates Micah as the source of understanding what is happening. If you see there in verse 5 and 6, for they told him in Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet, and you Bethlehem in land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall... From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, when Herod asked his religious advisers where the Christ is to be born, the reply comes from Micah chapter 5. That is the birthplace of the Christ during the Assyrian crisis. For that's what Micah is about. Micah is about the Assyrian crisis. It's the same crisis that... Isaiah is speaking about when Ahaz and Hezekiah are confronted by the Assyrians. It's a moment of judgment upon Judah and it's referred to in chapter 1 of Matthew because it's from that context that we get the prophecy about Emmanuel. Look back to the end of chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7 and it's talking about a moment in history when they were under the Assyrian conflict. At that moment in time, 700 years beforehand, the king had to trust God. He, he was never to enter into an alliance with Assyria, nor to join in the rebels, King Rezin and King Pekah, who were trying to rebel against Assyria. What he had to do was to trust God that God would protect his people from the destructive force of the Assyrian Empire. You see, in those days, Israel was divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Assyria was the world power. Israel and Judah were minor states, in amongst other minor states like Syria. But Assyria in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, it was the world power. And in expanding its imperial forces, it travelled around the, 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 the Great Crescent, rather than across the Arabian uh, uh, Desert, and came from the north, although it was an eastern power, came from the north and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BC. Totally destroyed it, never to be heard of again. Although the Mormons think that they, the lost tribes were in America and the British think that they're in Britain and all kinds, but they're never anywhere from there on in. They're just decimated from there on in. Having conquered Israel, Assyria continues south and in 705 BC, they are, in, they are again invaded, this time under the great king, Assyrian king, Sennacherib. The king of Judah, Hezekiah, was told by the prophets that what he had to do was just trust God, that God would defend Jerusalem. And so Hezekiah prayed earnestly to God and 
God miraculously rescued Jerusalem. Even though Assyria had besieged it for several years, suddenly, inexplicably, the Assyrian army packed up and went home. Now we know of this event from 2 Kings chapter 19, but interestingly it's one of the events we know from outside the Bible as well. The Greek uh, historian Herodotus talks about it. It was a remarkable thing that had happened. He gives an explanation that field mice had led to the defeat of the Assyrians. And Sennacherib in his own account talks about it too. He said, I shut him up, speaking of Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird within his royal capital of Jerusalem. But whereas he then goes on to recount how he defeats one king after another, he doesn't say any more than I shut him up. It never actually says that he conquered Jerusalem. This was a, a huge moment in the history of Israel. This was like the Battle of Trafalgar. This was like the, 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 the Normandy landing. This was, like, this was one of the great defining moments of their history when surprisingly, astonishingly, God at the last minute rescued the people of Jerusalem from the greatest world power of the time. And the prophet Micah spoke of the coming of a special king, a king who would come to save God's people, a king with a reminder of David about him. For like David, he would come out of the obscurity of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a really non-place. It's a little town, a little village that was notoriously small and insignificant. There was only one thing that ever happened in Bethlehem. That was King David came from there. David, the son of Jesse, David, the father of the royal dynasty, David, who was always going to rule over Judah and David, who was going to rule over all the other nations of the world, came from this obscure little village called Bethlehem. And Micah was promising a new David, one who would be the ruler over Israel, whose origin is of old from ancient of days, whose genesis lies back in the minds and plans and purposes of God. For he will shepherd the flock of Israel and he will bring the time of peace when the Assyrians will come into the land to be defeated. And the land of Assyria will be shepherded by Israel rather than Assyria shepherding Israel. Israel will shepherd Assyria and all false religions will be destroyed. That is what is being prophesied. A new David who would bring the moment of salvation for the remnant of the people of God would be rescued from the weak and hopeless kings who oversaw corruption within Judah and from all the foreign oppressors like Assyria or the Babylonians in a later day. It will be a new day where instead of tribute flowing out of Judah and Jerusalem to other nations the wealth and prosperity of other nations would flow into Judah and Jerusalem. It's an extraordinary concept of world taxation that instead of us paying for the Assyrians to leave us alone or for the Babylonians to leave us alone or for the Romans or anybody else to leave us alone, these nations are going to send us money. Come with me back in the Old Testament and look at it. Page 940, 940. Micah chapter 4. Give you the page number on our Bibles here because Micah's not that easy to find, is he? Chapter 4, page 940. It shall come to pass 
in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. See, the great age of world peace is going to come out of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem will be the capital of all the world, and the nations will be pouring into Jerusalem rather than coming to conquer Jerusalem. Now, all this is the background to Herod's judgment that we read of back here in Matthew chapter 2. For when the Magi come from the east, Babylon, Assyria, Nineveh, somewhere from the east, from these nations that previously terrorised, conquered and captured Israel and Judah, When they come, they come to bring tribute to the one who is born to be king. When they come to worship him, filled with the overwhelming joy on finding him. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But not Herod. Herod was troubled. And not only Herod, but all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Verse 3, Then when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was not born to be king. Not king of the Jews anyway. His claim to the throne was by influence and by politics and cunning. But He was by material prosperity and militarism able to maintain his throne. By corruption and compromise, he ruled the land, but he was never born to be king of the Jews. Here he is an old man. Around him were all these imagined plots to overthrow the government, to assassinate him and replace him. He had all the fears and mistrust of the ungodly who ruled by power, not righteousness, the mad cruelty and self-fulfilling suspicion of an Idi Amin or a Mao Tung or a Joseph Stalin or a Colonel Gaddafi or the list goes on of those kinds of people. If you rule by power and corruption, you rule by paranoia at the same time. Conspiracy is everywhere. And all Jerusalem was troubled. This was unsettling news in a society coming to terms with the wealth and prosperity that the house of Herod had ruled over. This was terrible news. If Herod was going to go off on one of his mad, paranoid pogroms, we don't want Herod upset. We don't want Herod to think there's a king come to usurp him. And do we need a new king? Who asked for a new king? And why now? And how do these Easterners know about this new king? 
And what will the Romans think if they hear that we've got a new king? The people did not want the baby born to be king. But this is one of the times when Herod was right. He was right to be troubled. He was right to think that there was a threat. He was right to ask the questions about the birthplace of the king. He was right to try and find this baby, the king. But notice particularly, he was right in his question in verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Not just the king, not just where's this prince, where is the Christ to be born? For the Christ was the only one born king of the Jews and he was the only real threat to Herod. And not just to him but also to his dynasty and to his city and to the corruption and the wickedness of his city and his reign. And so he asked the right question. Where's the Christ? The son of David, the son of Abraham going to be born. And the religious advisers, they were right. The answer is in the Old Testament in Micah chapter 5. In Bethlehem. Now, of course, the religious observers were shown up by the pagans who came looking for the king. The religious observers knew their Old Testament enough to know where he should have been found, but they didn't go looking for him. And the Magi, they were right. They were the nations coming not to plunder, but to praise. Not in war, but in worship. Not to grab but to give. Micah had prophesied over 700 years earlier that God would send his saviour, the son of David, from out of the obscurity of David's home birthplace, Bethlehem. And that this one would actually make Bethlehem famous. Which is true. To this day, Bethlehem is one of the most famous villages in the world. And that this one would shepherd his people as their king. Well, now in chapter 2, this one has been born. And all the world is symbolized by these wise men, these magicians, coming to learn from him. For the nations will come to learn. However, by the 21st century, we have domesticated these wise men into oriental kings bringing trinkets to finish off a nice picture of a Middle Eastern winter scene, more appropriately a North European one, seeing Bethlehem hardly ever has snow. We've missed the change of heart that the new king requires, a change of heart symbolised in the pagan wise men who are now going to the Jews to worship and to learn. A change of heart rejected by Herod and the Jerusalemites. They didn't want the king. One group rejoices exceedingly at the sight of the birth of the Saviour, for he comes as the salvation of all mankind. The other group hates the very possibility of the birth of the Saviour. Their wealth and their world order is about to be challenged even by a baby born in obscurity 
because this baby is born in accordance with God's prophetic message. And the implications are so massive for what will be required of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he came to us not in obscurity but in your prophetic word. That though he was born in the obscurity of a little village in Judah, yet he was born in the clear light of your word and your prophets, your plans and your purposes. And that though his contemporary people, your people Israel, did not receive him, yet all the world has beaten a path to his door that we may all worship him. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for the birth of the Christ, the King, your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.